Christians. Um, I probably don't say enough publicly about them, but just really appreciate uh, the time and energy that they put into preparing uh, every every single Sunday morning. Um, many times uh, they will meet throughout the week to get ready, um, you know, it just to serve us. It, it really is an act of service so that we can sing, so that we can rejoice to the Lord. So uh, thank you to those of you that played this morning and then also to those of you that sing in the choir and participate in our music ministry uh, week in and week out. Just really, really appreciate it. Um, so a few minutes ago, I was sitting there uh, while Mark was singing, and I caught a whiff of hot dog smell coming <laughs> over me from someone grilling somewhere. I think that would be Ron. And I decided in that moment that I had no chance this morning when I got up to hold your attention for long if the smell of hot dogs was going to continue. So we will try to try to get you out for the fundraiser, and I hope that you will plan on staying for that and supporting the youth group and just fellowshipping with one another. Uh, just a good time to be together. So anyway, let's pray this morning before we get to God's word. Um, seek his face, all right? Let's pray. God, even as we just sang, you are the one who was and is and is to come. You are everything. It all starts with you, it all is sustained by you, and it all culminates in the future with your honor and glory being proclaimed by all of creation and all of your redeemed people around the throne, singing some of those very words that we just sang. Holy, holy, holy. You are distinct. There is no one like you. And so it is our privilege this morning to open your words to us. You spoke. You had men write down your words and you communicated to us through this book that we read during the week, that we sing on Sundays, and that we approach each Sunday and study together. And we want to understand who you are through your word this morning. So please Use the Holy Spirit to communicate to our hearts this morning through your word. Strengthen us, change us, grow us, make us more like Jesus Christ. Fill us with love for you and love for one another. That's the goal this morning, Father. That's why we preach each and every Sunday. That's why we listen each and every Sunday. Fill us with love for you and love for one another. If we're not aiming toward that goal, then nothing else we do matters. So we ask you, because you're a good father and you give good gifts to your children, we ask you to accomplish that in us this morning. Thank you for who you are in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I saw a few weeks ago, some of you may know this, that Ford hired a new CEO. Did any of you see this? Um, Ford did hire a new CEO. Uh, and I... I saw that story come up, and I'm always fascinated um, by the hiring process of companies when they hire someone at that level. Obviously, you all know that Ford is a massive company, international company, and to hire a guy to run the company from the top down is uh, is pretty amazing. And I always am curious what that what that process looks like when they do that. Now, some of you have had the opportunity in your lives to 
uh, to hire other people to work for you, to work for the business that you have. And some of you would be able to answer this question, but if you were to hire a new employee for your business, whether that would be a CEO or whether that would be an hourly employee, what are some of the qualities that you would look for as you're going to hire that person? Now, you don't have to answer back to me, but as you're sitting there, think about that. What are some of those qualities that you would look for? Obviously, you would want someone who's qualified for the job. I would not make a very good CEO for Ford at all. Um, you would obviously want someone with very uh, various experience in the field that you're hiring them for. You would want someone with a hard work ethic. You don't want someone who's lazy. Depending on the job, you probably want someone with creativity. You want them to be able to advance the ball for your company, not just maintain the status quo, but you want things to get better, more efficient, more productive, all of that. Um, You would probably want the person to be excited about the job that you're offering to them. Um, you, You would want them to jump in with both feet and be anticipating what they can do for your company All of those things are true, and I'm sure some of you could list other character qualities that you would look for. Now, suppose that you were not hiring for a specific company, but suppose that you were going to start an international movement that would span generations, you hoped would go around the world, and you were looking for people to carry your message to the nations. It seems like if that were what you were going to do, you, the stakes would be even higher for who you're looking for. I mean, you would want the best of the best to be able to accomplish that mission. So what does it look like for Jesus when he calls his disciples? What sort of character qualities is he looking for when he says, I want you to be part of my inner circle. I want you to be a follower for me And you're going to start this movement that will go to the nations. What sort of character qualities does he value? Well, as you read through the Gospels and you see Christ call his disciples to himself, like the passage we're going to look at this morning, he looks for qualities that are countercultural. They're certainly countercultural for the, the age that he was in, for the religious institutions for Israel at that time. But the qualities that he looks for are very often the opposite of what we value and what we hold dear in the church. And I say qualities, but I should probably change that to quality. Really, Jesus looks for one quality in his followers. He's after the broken. He's after the sick. He's after the messed up. And he's after those who recognize themselves to be dysfunctional. They know that's true of them. Some of you have probably heard of the author G.K. Chesterton. He lived in the early 1900s. And uh, Chesterton one time read an article in the London newspaper, and the article was entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And being a pretty witty guy, Chesterton wrote back a letter in response, and here's what the letter said. Dear Sir... Regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) But what's amazing about Jesus is that he, he sees that level of defectiveness in us. He knows that you and I are exactly what's wrong with this world. 
And he sees that, and yet he pours out his glorious grace on us in spite of our brokenness and because of our brokenness. And this, that truth is what makes the gospel of the kingdom good news. That's why we're studying what we're studying in Mark, and that's what makes all of this good news for those of us who are sick and broken and dysfunctional, because that's all of us. And so we come to our passage today, Mark 2, verses 13 through 17. You can see it on the screen there. Our series is Kingdom Conflict. We're going through a a number of passages where Jesus has conflict with the various religious leaders of his day. And this morning, we're going to see three elements of Christ's posture toward the broken. Three elements of Christ's posture toward the broken. So how does, how does Jesus relate to those who are sick and who are broken, who are dysfunctional, and who are messed up? And this is pretty applicable for you and I. I know it's applicable for me. And I'm pretty sure it's applicable for you, too. And as we study this passage, it, once again, we're going to see truths that come to the surface about Christ because of his conflict with these religious leaders. And we're going to catch another glimpse of who he is and what he's like by examining this conflict that he has with these leaders. So three elements of Christ's posture toward the broken. And the first one of these is that he pursues. It's in verses 13 and 14. He pursues. Now, if you remember, if you were here last week, you remember that Jesus was in Capernaum. That's a geographical location where he's at. It's a city by the Sea of Galilee. And he's in a house in Capernaum. And we had that whole experience where the men bring the paralytic man, break through the roof, dig out the roof, and lower the man in front of Jesus. And then he has this whole conflict over forgiveness with the religious leaders. And so as we move into our story for this week in verse 13, you can see that Jesus is still really close to uh, to Capernaum. He's by the Sea of Galilee, which is right there. Look at verse 13. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. It's amazing as you, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, as we're studying through it, how many times you find Jesus doing exactly what he said he was going to do. It seems like every time we turn to a new story, we find Jesus teaching people. That's what he's come to do. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God to people who are coming around him and who are listening. Now, at this point, as you find Christ doing this, I want to remind you, sort of big picture, of two major themes that you're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. We talked about these early on, and just to go back to these, because they're pretty important as we study this book. The first one of those themes is that we're going to uncover the identity of Christ, right? So we're going to see who he is as we study through this book. And the second one of those themes Flowing from his identity, who he is, there are implications for us as followers of Christ. So when you see who Jesus is, it requires something of your life and of your lifestyle. You cannot come in contact with him as Lord and Savior, Redeemer, and all the things that we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. You can't see those things and come away unchanged. You will either enter into judgment, it will harden your heart, you will reject him and who he is, or you will embrace it in faith and you will become a follower of Jesus Christ. 
That's what we call discipleship. And as Jesus is out proclaiming this message of who he is, of the kingdom's arrival, the breaking in of the kingdom, and as these obligations come on to people, you don't find him being haphazard about calling these disciples to himself. And you can see throughout this book that he is going to be very intentional about calling people to come and to specifically follow him. And he's going to be intentional about giving them the requirements of that discipleship. If you remember back in chapter 1, we saw this whole scene back in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Um, If you just even want to flip back over there and look at that for a second. You can remember remember this passage. Jesus is going by the Sea of Galilee. It's a very similar sort of scene as what we're going to find today. But he's going by the Sea of Galilee, and he calls two sets of brothers to come to him. Uh, And he, he calls to these brothers, and he tells them in verse 17, Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And so he calls these disciples to himself, And he tells them, you're going to be a fisher of men. And remember, we examined how that means they're going to proclaim hope and judgment to people, depending on how you respond to Jesus and who he is. Well, if you go back to chapter 2 in our passage today, we find a very similar scene, and he's going to call another disciple to himself. There are obligations to those who learn who Jesus is, and his authority is displayed here. Look at verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. It's so simply stated. But Levi, or Matthew, is how we would know his name. A couple names here in Scripture. But this is Matthew. Matthew, or Levi, is hardly someone who would make the top of anyone's list to be a disciple. Um, he, he is not looking to apply for this job, and he does not have the, the credentials to get this job as a disciple. You all are good Bible students, and so I'm sure you're very familiar with the very shady business of living as a tax collector during this time. Um, I'm sure you've read about this, what it was like to be a tax collector and what they did during this time. Um, Today, we don't encounter our tax collectors face-to-face very often. We just write our checks and send in our money to the government, and we don't have to deal with them face-to-face. But in this time, these people, you dealt with them face-to-face, and they collected the money from you, and they were hated by the Jews. Um, And the reason they were hated is because they were essentially helping the Roman Empire to maintain a foothold in Israel. And that was a a concept that the Jews absolutely hated and despised this occupation of Israel by the Romans. And so they detested any Jews that would help this sort of occupation to happen here. And many, many tax collectors were deceitful. They were immoral. They would collect more than was coming to them. They would pad their own pockets with the taxes that they collected. Tax collectors in this society were the consummate outsiders. They weren't in the mainstream. They weren't on anyone's friend list. Tax collectors in Jewish society were expelled from the synagogue. They couldn't come and worship Yahweh with the rest of their family and friends. Tax collectors, their testimony didn't count in court 
Basically, what they said wasn't even valued at all. They couldn't be trusted to tell the truth. Many, many times, they were, their families would disassociate with them. They were embarrassed that they had a member who was a tax collector. And even beyond all of that, I, I read something I'd never read before about tax collectors. I read that there was a conservative school of rabbis and a more liberal school of rabbis. And both schools taught that it was morally acceptable to lie to a tax collector. So this would be like Republicans and Democrats agreeing on something, right? So no matter who you were, no matter what interpretation of the Torah you took, you agreed that tax collectors were morally loathsome people. You wanted nothing to do with them at all. And so Levi here is not worthy at all to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. And this is why, as you can see on the screen, to do the pursuing here. This is why he has to initiate. And as you read this little simple statement here in verse 14, this sounds exactly like the story that we read in chapter 1. Jesus calls to Levi, much like he did to the other disciples. And you can see the reaction of Levi here. It's very simply stated, he rose at the end of verse 14 and followed him. And as Levi, Matthew, did this, his reaction would have cost him his job. This would have cost him his livelihood. And and taking this action was hardly based on his own worthiness as a follower of Christ. Jesus didn't call Levi because he was... He was the best, most moral, upstanding tax collector at all. Levi had done nothing to be noticed by Jesus other other than be broken and sick and on the outside of righteous Jewish society. He was an outsider. He wasn't on the approved list. But calling an outsider, calling someone in that situation who's broken and messed up, that's the initiating grace of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. He pursues those who are in need. Now, this morning, I know there are people in this room who feel like they don't measure up as a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're trying, you're giving it your best shot. Maybe you've never encountered Christ, but you think, I, there's no way. I am not good enough. I don't do enough right things to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian. The Christians I know seem like good, upstanding people, and I am not that. Well, you don't have to have your act together in any measurable way to start being a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ and you and constantly come face to face with your brokenness day in and day out, Christ calls you to recognize that brokenness. And he calls you to to know that you are exactly where you need to be as his follower. And that brings us to our second element of Christ's posture toward those who are broken. He pursues and he fellowships. He fellowships. And this is in verses 15 and 16. Jesus pursues those who are broken, who are dysfunctional, like you and I. But he goes a step beyond that, and he fellowships with them. Look at verse 15. Change of scenery here from the beach. 
And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It wasn't just Levi that followed Christ. It wasn't just him. This was the tip of the iceberg to what happened. And a passage like this, describing this group of people following Jesus and coming so early in the Gospel of Mark, this tells us, and and you can see other incidents like this in the Gospels, this was not out of the ordinary for Jesus. In fact, you would have to say this was typical of his ministry. I mean, this is exactly why the Pharisees got so upset with him, as you'll see later on, and they called him a drunkard. (laughs) They said he was hanging out with the lowlifes. It was because of situations like this that they said those things about Jesus. Now, there's a couple things in verse 15 that I want you to see here that'll help you to understand what's going on in this passage. First of all, it says that Jesus reclined at the table. Look at that at the beginning of verse 15. He reclined with these people at Levi's house. Now, I'm sure you've heard this before, but in the ancient world, many times you didn't sit at a chair like we're going to do at lunch in a few minutes. You would recline next to the table and sort of lay down there. And when you did that, when it was a, an environment like that, it indicated that it was a feast that was happening. I mean, this, this wasn't just getting together and uh, hanging out for a few minutes over a brief lunch. This was a party that was happening at this house that Jesus, it looks like, was hosting. And look what it says. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with him. You know the saying, birds of a feather flock together, right? So Levi is in this social group that would be considered outcasts. Christ calls him to himself. He initiates, gives his grace to him, calls him to himself. And then a whole portion of this social group come to have fellowship with Jesus at this house. These were the outsiders. These were the morally suspect of the day. And they all gathered together. And there's one more thing you need to understand about this gathering here. Eating together in this way was not just sharing a burrito over lunch and then being on your way. The Pharisees, uh, as you'll see in a few minutes, would have taken great exception to this. And one of the reasons for that is because they had all these ritual laws of cleanness and uncleanness. If you remember when we talked about the leper, the leper was ritually unclean. He was on the outside of society, right? He was sort of away from good, upstanding Israelite society. Well, these people don't have a skin disease that puts them there. They had chosen to go there because of their morally reprehensible lifestyle. And so to eat with these folks would have made one unclean in the eyes of the Pharisees. To eat with them or with Gentiles, Gentiles and sinners, would have put you on the outside of polite society. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's identifying with these people. And when he identifies with them and associates with them, it provokes a reaction. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, 
said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now you can see from their reaction here, this is not just sharing a meal, a quick lunch. They understand this to be something much more significant than that. Jesus was initiating acceptance and offering grace to people who absolutely did not deserve his grace. And that leads us to our last element of Christ's posture toward the broken. He interferes. I love this. He interferes. And there's a couple parts to this, and you need to listen to both of them. He interferes. Well, first of all, he interferes with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders of the day. This was scandalous to them, right? And I think it's funny here. You can see in verse 16, they ask his disciples. They don't ask Jesus. And I think they ask his disciples because they're all hanging around outside the house. They won't go into the house. Because they don't want to become ritually unclean. They don't want to associate with these people. So I don't know if they sent someone in to call the disciples out, but they they asked the disciples instead of asking Jesus about this. And they were worried that Christ's identification with these people would mean approving of their sin and of their lifestyles. And they were also concerned about this impurity thing, being able to worship in the synagogue and the temple and all of that. And in many ways, what's happening here would have been more offensive to them than touching a leper. And it would have been that way because they chose, as we already said, they chose this lifestyle. And the Pharisees felt like they were the ones who rightly decided who was in and who was out. Who would be considered Israel? Who would be considered a part of the covenant people here? They defined the boundaries of who was acceptable and who wasn't, who could receive teaching from God's word, who could worship in the synagogue and all of this. They thought they defined those boundaries and Jesus comes along. And one of the themes you'll see in the gospel of Mark is that he absolutely crashes through those boundaries and makes quite a stir doing it. And eventually it ends up costing him his life for what he does. But he's interfering here with the way that they saw this system playing itself out. Now, when you think about this interference here with the religious system of the day, the Pharisees and the way they saw this working itself out, I want to remind you that this act of interference is a way that Jesus is telling us what his kingdom is like. One of the things I've stressed over and over again throughout this gospel is that when Jesus does miracles, it's not just him saying, look how powerful I am, but it's him enacting the kingdom. He's showing us what the kingdom looks like. He's showing us that the kingdom has broken into the present and it will look like this. This story is another example of that. And Christ isn't doing a miracle, but what he's showing us is that his kingdom is one where those who are morally reprehensible are called to him and are redeemed and are set right and are brought into fellowship with him. That's what his kingdom looks like. And by eating with these people, he's saying there's going to be a future messianic table 
We're all going to fellowship together around the table when we're with God in eternity. And I'm bringing a little bit of that into the present. And it's not going to be you religious leaders who are there. It's going to be people that are broken and that are sick and that are on the outside. I want to read a passage to you from Luke chapter 13. You can, you can flip over there if you want to, to follow along. But uh, Luke 13, verses 23 to 30. Listen to this. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And look at this. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Christ's kingdom extends to those from the east, from the west, from the north and from the south who are broken and who are losers and who are last place. That's who his kingdom comes to. Now look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I told you that Jesus interferes with the Pharisees, but he also interferes with the broken and the sick. He doesn't leave them in that situation. Look what it says in verse 17. It says, Jesus came. He arrived on the scene. Why did he arrive on the scene? Go back in chapter 1. It's probably on the same page to verse 38, 138. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So Jesus came to preach. What did he come to preach? We'll go back to chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And here's part of his message. Repent and believe in the good news. Christ comes to call to the sick and the broken to repent and believe in him and to not continue to be sick and broken. Remember how we've talked about over and over again that when Christ does those miracles, it's showing us that his kingdom is one of wholeness and beauty and goodness. And last week we saw that his kingdom brings forgiveness. Well, that's what he's enacting here is that that kingdom of goodness and wholeness and wellness and forgiveness is going to come to those who are broken and sick. That is the good news of the kingdom. Now, 
This morning we've seen this, this I think is a beautiful picture of Christ and what he does in his work. His posture toward the sick and the broken. His posture is one of healing. It's one of grace. It's one of kindness. And what I want to do with the remaining few minutes that we have is I want to make some application of this to our own lives. Now, my guess is that probably through this explanation of this passage this morning, that perhaps maybe some of you have been a bit uncomfortable, maybe not, but maybe you've heard me talk about Christ offering acceptance and forgiveness to those who are sinners and tax collectors and broken. And you thought, oh no, that sounds a little scandalous there. Like you might be approving of, of what Jesus is doing here and of the way that he's offering goodness and forgiveness to people who really don't deserve it. And that's probably the right place to be, to be scandalized by what Christ does here. But the the way I want to talk about this application is this passage is is often used to, to determine how we reach out to people. People see this and they read it and they go, well, we should reach out like Christ does here to those who are broken, who are sick, who are on the outside of society. And I want to ponder the implications of that for our own lives, all right? So there's, there's, a, couple ways, um, there's a couple ways that people struggle with this passage or with the idea here of reaching out to those who are broken and who are sick, all right? One is um, people see this passage and they read it and they see that Christ eats with sinners and tax collectors and they say, and they act on the basis of this and they say, well, I'm going to spend a lot of time with unbelievers. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to go to these parties and I'm going to, I'm going to sort of give myself to the same lifestyle that these people are in order to win them. Right? So that, that's what some people do. And then in responding to that, you'll hear other people who will talk about the calls to holiness in Scripture. And they'll say, well, you can't do that. That's not the proper use of this passage. And so those people will sort of withdraw from unbelievers and sinners. And they'll sort of cloister themselves together and not ever reach out to those who are in need of this scandalous grace. And so there, it's like there are two dangers here on both sides. And we need to figure out how to walk on this balance beam and properly apply what Jesus does here to our own lives. All right? And the dangers are the believe, believers can sort of, again, cloister themselves away from unbelievers. And we end up being a closed community where we never reach out. And we never impact others with the good news of the gospel. And on the opposite side, you can become so immersed in the culture around you that you end up looking like the culture and acting and thinking like the culture, and you're not distinct, and then you can't bring the good news to the world around you. And so what I want to do with our last couple of minutes here this morning is I want to to give you some principles to help you manage the balancing act here. How do you do this? How do you stay on the balance beam and reach out to those who are in need and and mimic what Christ does here? Because I think it's meant to be imitated. But how do you do that while remaining holy and distinct and maintaining your relationship with Christ? And it's amazing because Christian groups often will fall on one side or the other of this. And their whole ministry will be characterized by which way they fall on the other side of this. So I want to give you four principles to help guide you to remain holy 
while at the same time aggressively reaching out to those who are in need and mimicking the grace that Christ has here. Because I think that's what he calls us to, all right? So these are application principles to be holy while reaching out. Hopefully this will spark some good conversation at lunch today. First of all, be aggressively committed to the local church. I cannot emphasize this enough as you're reaching out to those in the community. Be aggressively committed to the local church. I don't know what you think of when you gather with the body this morning, what you think we're doing, or if you ever even think about what we're doing when we gather this morning, every Sunday morning. But what's happening when you come on Sunday morning is you are coming apart from your regular life. You are coming apart into a different kingdom this morning. It's a countercultural gathering and kingdom. And when you gather together this morning, when you worship, when you serve one another in the church, you are building a kingdom perspective and lifestyle. It's like, think of the church as a kingdom outpost or a, a, an embassy of Christ's kingdom. And you come to that embassy every week in order to receive news from the homeland and in order to better understand the culture of the homeland. And then you go out from here during the week in order to live out that culture in front of a different culture. And so that's why it's so vital for you to be here on Sunday and for you to participate in the worship service by singing and to listen to God's word preached. And that's why it's so vital to develop relationships with others within the body. This is a kingdom embassy. And you and I need to be here in order to adopt a kingdom perspective. And if you aren't gathering here with the local church, with the kingdom embassy and outpost here, then you won't even realize it, but you're going to so quickly adopt the mindsets and perspectives of the culture around you. You won't even know it. And you're going to adopt those things instead of the culture and the mindsets and the perspective of Christ's kingdom. So this is number one. How do you remain holy while reaching out? You have to be a part of the countercultural kingdom, which is the church. Come to church on Sundays. Be here to worship. Not just so I can look out and see a full crowd here on Sunday. That's not why you're here. It's so you can be built up in the faith and receive news from Christ's kingdom. All right. Be aware, number two, of your desires and let Scripture shape them, all right? There's a ton of misunderstanding about what worldliness is. And when you misunderstand what worldliness is, then you don't reach out as you should, and you actually end up becoming more and more like the world. What is worldliness? Well, it's not to be found in the physical creation. You're not worldly because you have a job, because you drive a car, because you listen to a certain style of music, because you dress a certain way. Now, that can indicate worldliness, but worldliness is primarily a matter of your desires and what's in your heart. Look at 1 John 2. 1 John chapter 2. Flip over there. Look how John describes worldliness. Do not love. There you go. Love. It's about your loves. It's about your affections. It's about what you're drawn toward, what you 
want in life. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires, the wants, the cravings of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. He goes on to describe the world passing away. Worldliness is about what your heart craves. And your heart will learn to crave whatever you hold in front of it as a vision of the good life. What are we here for? What are we doing? What is a really well-lived life? Your heart will learn to crave whatever you see as that vision of the good life. Is it about making a ton of money, owning a late model car, and having a bunch of vacation homes? If that's the good life... Your heart will crave after that, and that will be a worldly mindset. So be aware of that. Analyze your desires. See what you're wanting and what you're craving. Do that in order to remain distinct while reaching out. Third, be holy while reaching out. Be passionate about taking the gospel to unbelievers. Now, this is to me as much as it is to anybody else. This is for all of us. How do we remain holy while reaching out? We have to... Imitate what Christ does here. Be passionate about taking the gospel to unbelievers. We want to be holy. We want to be distinct. But far too often, we shy away from interaction with unbelievers. We don't pursue taking the gospel to those around us, developing relationships with them in order to share Christ with them. Maybe we need to adjust our understanding of holiness. Holiness is certainly being distinct, but it's being distinct in our loves. And it's our love for others and for God that defines us as holy. And so as we love others, we want them to receive the gospel. And so the the best way we can demonstrate holiness is to love others by giving the gospel to them. This has to be a major focal point for us in the church. If we're going to be faithful to Christ. Jesus in this passage tells us that he came to earth for the sick. Right? He came to call the sick to repentance and faith. He came to bring healing, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. You and I have the cure. We have the cure for the sickness, and we have to go and make it known. So, to myself, to you, go find some sick people. Let's go find some sick people. Let's build relationships with them. Let's eat with them. And let's remain holy while we do it and keep our desires in check. Don't become worldly. Come to church on Sunday, but go find some sick people. We live in a city filled with sick and broken people, do we not? You can walk around the streets and you just see, man, these people, they don't know. They don't know about the cure. They don't know what's out there. They don't know what's available. We have the balm that they need. So let's go and find some sick people and share that with them. And then lastly, be always ready to adjust, right? This is the essence of walking by faith. We get it wrong. We're broken people still. So we're not going to do this right. We're going to fall off on one side of the balance beam or on the other. Probably this morning, some of you think, man, you talked a little too much on this side or a little too much on this side. Okay, fine. Let's adjust. Let's adjust what we're doing. If you find yourself not knowing any sick people or reaching out to them with the gospel, 
then be passionate about going and finding sick people. But if you find your desires are starting to be shaped by the world around you and you're loving what the world loves, then make sure you're in church. Adjust your lifestyle based on some of these principles we've given you this morning. Remain distinct while at the same time having an impact on the culture. And listen, we wouldn't be talking about this as a difficulty if it wasn't really a difficulty, right? It's hard. It's hard to get the right balance. But let's work together to find that balance, to reach out with the gospel to sick and broken people, and to remain a kingdom outpost that's holy and distinct. So the challenge for you and I this morning is do a little self-evaluation. Figure out which side of the balance beam you fall off on. And see this image of Christ here as one who comes for the sick and the broken. And figure out the best way that you can go about mimicking this. And let's go find some sick people. And let's bring them to the kingdom outpost here. Let's let them hear the gospel of the kingdom. That they can be fixed. They can be healed. And they can enter that kingdom And anticipate with hope that day when we're all together in wholeness and forgiveness. We're all centered around Christ. That's the challenge for this morning, all right? Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. It makes us uncomfortable at times. Christ makes us uncomfortable at times. And we pray that you would use that level of discomfort in our lives to say, I'm not reaching out as I should to say, I'm not distinct and holy as I should be, and help us to uh, come to you in repentance and faith, and then go out and pursue those who are broken and lost. And Lord, even further back than that, we thank you that you pursued us when we were broken and sick and lost. And we thank you that you don't give up on us, even though we're still dysfunctional, Lord. We are broken disciples And we're so grateful for the way you patiently work with us and you use your spirit and your word and your people to mature us. And we ask that you would continue that work in our hearts even today, Father. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his grace and kindness to us. Apply this word to our hearts. Apply the example and the work of Christ to our hearts even this morning. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. In his name we pray. Amen.